The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week... There is no way these numbers suggest inflation is licked. John Authors and Jonathan Levin on inflation volatility. Also... The generic ballot. People ask, do you intend to vote for a Democrat or Republican for the House? That question is basically tied right now. Republicans had opened up a small lead, then that's dissipated. Jonathan Bernstein on the week in politics. And later we speak with Anjani Trivedi in Dubai on the changing centres of the financial universe. First, though, to the markets following the Consumer Price Index data and John Authors. So, John, CPI still up 8.5%. Markets ripped after the number, yes. but it's not exactly a low inflation print. No, it isn't. And if we'd been told this was going to be the number for July six months ago, even, we would have been horrified. And it's important not to ignore that. It is true that the number came in better than the month before and that it was better than virtually any expectation. In terms of what really mattered, a lot of the really extreme price moves that were labelled transitory when they began to get going in earnest early last year are now dramatically reversing again. So things like car rental prices, Gas used car prices. prices, they're coming down very sharply and that helps the overall headline number. What I think needs to be addressed very carefully however is that if you look at core prices there are various technical ways you can do this but the trimmed mean is a popular one where mm -hmm. you exclude the most and the least rising inflation components and take the average of the rest. That's got to 7% and it did rise. It rose less than usual but it's not actually peaked yet. Similarly, the Atlanta Fed looks at sticky prices, which it takes you a while to change compared to flexible prices that can move all over the place. And initially, this was all about flexible prices. And at the moment, flexible price inflation is coming down and sticky price inflation is still going up. Which brings us to mm. the question of whether it takes the impetus for a 75 basis point hike away. We will have another CPI round and another jobs report. Yes. If you look at... Fed funds contract for the next meeting. It shot up on non-farm payrolls. You went from in round numbers from a 40 to about a 70, 75% chance of 75 bips rather than 50. And it went straight back to exactly where it was before the non-farm payrolls after inflation. It's almost exactly a 50-50 shot, whether we get 75 or, or 50. So an, a surprisingly strong employment number gave the Fed more cover and more reason to hike and this inflation number gives them more reason not to hike if they don't feel like it. Politically they don't want to hike immediately before the midterms if they can avoid it. They have a better shot of doing that if they hike by 75 bips next time and there is no way these numbers suggest inflation is licked. Headline inflation including those extreme moves in oil it would be very disappointing if the peak isn't in for that. Mm. But that's not something the Fed can actually control that directly. The stuff that the Fed is trying to control is not 
clearly peaking yet. We're going to talk about the Fed potentially making a mistake mm. in a few minutes with Jonathan Levin, but yeah. if the Fed moves 75 or 50, how immediate of a mistake would that be if it were the wrong number? <laughs> Wouldn't there be time to turn it around? Well, well, mon- mon- <laughs> monetary policy w- works with a lag. Yeah. So it's not as though uh, the economy would immediately tank after it happened. Mm, but the market, I mean, the markets might react um, volatilely. September is often a time when you know, a lot of the great market crises get going in September and October mm. over history. And so, yes, you can you can imagine, I think, also in terms of American politics, there is the fact that uh, these midterms now do look as though they could be interesting and that will feed into some degree of volatility. Certainly if the Democrats held on to the House, that Mm. would be a very big surprise, which at least is now conceivable. So yes, the chances of greater volatility in September are there. We do have Jackson Hole between now and then. We have Jackson Hole and Powell is going to have to be so careful at Jackson Hole. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And another CPI and another non-farm payrolls if they haven't managed to get their messaging straight so that they can do whatever they do without shocking anyone, that would be bad management by the Fed. I'm not too worried about that myself. I mean, they don't have much more visibility than we do, and they won't have much more visibility by Jackson Hole either. So it's difficult to know what Fed Chair Powell will make a speech about. It'll have to be something very anodyne. Well, yes. (laughs) Whether he wants to just say, forget about the speech I made two years ago. Yes. Um, when he was going to be the inverse Volcker. <laughs> but he did say that he was going to try to raise inflation. And boy, did he succeed on that one. We can at least give him some credit for that one. Just one point mm. before we continue on. You've pointed out this week that profit margins are the next potential pain point. I think that's yes. consensus pretty much. Yes. Will companies be able to manage them? This is the interesting point. This is I, I have been sceptical about the equity market rally. The one big point that gives me pause as to whether stocks really do deserve to be rising is that Margins held up much better than many had expected in the second quarter. And that does feed into quite a concerning combination. The good news, if you're a shareholder, obviously, is that your companies can absorb higher costs and pass them on to consumers. The bad news, if you're a consumer or if you're a central banker, is that that means inflation is likely to continue to go up. It also feeds into a narrative that could be pretty bad for public companies and their shareholders, Mm. i.e. that um, inflation is being driven by corporate greed and rapacity. Um, That would be one of the many reasons why inflation is going up, and they could be very, very nice to the rest of us and help price inflation come back down by voluntarily sacrificing the profits. (laughs) Uh, just, Just to make clear that if you're complaining about them, this is what you want them to do. Yes. But it is a real issue and a good populist politician can make a lot of hay with it. And the populist politicians are on both wings of politics. As long days. as they're not getting funded by these same companies. Well, there is that. We're also now joined by Jonathan Levin. Okay, so Jonathan Levin has joined us in studio. Jonathan, one of your columns this week, or several of your columns, talked about inflation volatility and how that's actually the more important thing to watch. It's also very difficult to compute. Yeah, exactly. The problem with high inflation isn't necessarily that it's high, but inflation that tends to be high also tends to be unpredictable. The models stop working very well when we're in a regime like Mm. this. You know, 
In a perfect world, if I told you, Vani, that inflation was going to be 5% next year, then you could adjust the cost of your goods and services accordingly. You could raise wages for all of your workers by 5%, yeah. and everybody would go about their business, and it would be no big deal. But when the models work as badly as they're working today, and you know, I don't mean to pick on no anybody. The, uh, the, the Wall Street models have stunk. The Fed's models have stunk. And just in general, the way that we go about understanding inflation has not worked very well for more or less the last 18 months. So what does this mean? These hard decisions for households and businesses, hmm. they're taking them without very much visibility at all. Well, and John Arthur's Piper Sanders yeah. team did have another piece about inflation volatility this week, and it's high. They say it's as high as levels of the 1970s and 1980s. Yes. Does it matter for real activity, as Jonathan Levin says it does? Yes, it does, because metaphor often used, it, it throws sand in the wheels. It adds an extra layer of uncertainty, which more or less requires that you meet it with some degree of, of wastage. It's in the same way that if you're nervous about a storm coming, you're just going to have to have more in inventory than you'd, you'd prefer to have to be safe. If you're really not sure where prices are going to be in another 6, 12 months, your behaviour is going to be less predictable and it's almost certainly going to be less efficient. So we should take comfort in the fact that New York Fed's inflation expectations data showed that they're com they're coming down a little bit, at least on the part of the average consumer, but we're waiting for you, Michigan data to tell us a little bit more about that. But that plays very much into mm. overall inflation volatility, right? Jonathan wrote a great column on Michigan expectations. It's a little bit like deciding presidential elections by getting Gallup to go away and do a poll and mm. tell us who'd won. <laughs> do you think those inflation expectation surveys really merit the weight that's put on them? Yeah, well, uh, the, the trouble is that a lot of economic research about inflation over probably the past 20 years has, has found that inflation expectations are very, very important. We just don't know how to measure them. We yeah. have very little confidence in our ability to understand how consumers and households form their inflation expectations and to measure those expectations in real time. And yet that was the whole impetus for the Fed's last move. So yeah. the question is, to what extent is the Fed still flying blind, Jonathan Levin? I think they're flying relatively blind. I, I mean, look, the situation is that We've had good reports in the past, right? In the summer of 2021, it really looked like we had turned the corner, but one good report does not a trend make. Yep. Frankly, three good reports does not a trend make. I will take one and I will hope for the best, <laughs> you know, two, three, four months from now. I would say at least the Fed can now take some degree of confidence that the really extreme transitory effects that followed the pandemic are now dying down, having been somewhat less transitory than everyone had hoped. They have still been transitory. So there's maybe one area of unpredictability that's been taken out of the situation. But I think the critical point, I think it is very likely that the headline inflation peak is in because of all those extreme oil and transport related things. So but that's not what really matters. It's how quickly does it come down? If it's still at four and a half, five percent at the turn of the year, everybody's going to be demanding much more in the way of wage rises than they would be if it was two and a half percent at the end of the year. Is it fair to say, and I'm asking you both, that recession is the base case for the Treasury market and still is, Jonathan Levin? 
you know, that's one reading of, of the yield curve. Another reading of the yield curve, as my colleague Bob Burgess pointed out, is that the Fed is going to get the job done, mm. right? And, and, and that's why yeah. uh, 10-year yields are significantly lower than, say, two-year yields. You know, for me, for six to 12 months, my base case has been, if there's going to be a recession, it's going to be because of the Fed, right? So on the mm. margin, if you think that this lowers your probability distribution, that they're going to go higher, this this most recent report, then, you know, the probability of a recession has dropped slightly mm. in, the, yes. in, in the past 24 hours. And the possibility of a soft landing, which I had ticked down to pretty much zero at one point, is I still don't think it's likely, but it's possible again now. Bob Burgess's column, as you mentioned, Jonathan, Levin, also, though, asked the question of whether the yield curve's predictability has been diminished. John Authors, would you say that that might be the case these days? Like inflation expectations, another number that's incredibly important but totally impossible to measure in real time is the term premium. Mm. Most sensible measures of the term premium, the degree of uncertainty you factor into your future prices, suggest that the term premium has never been lower, which would in turn imply that people really aren't worried at all, which suggests in turn that something very strange is indeed going on in the bond market because that's not the case. There there plainly are some very strange liquidity issues going on with the bond market. That said, of all the markets that are out there, the one I would be least confident betting against would be the bond market. You don't dismiss it lightly, even if you do say, well, maybe this isn't as strong an indicator as it appears. It could be an indication of safe haven flows, though, no, Jonathan Levin? Yeah. This low-term premium? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of risk out there. <laughs> well, and managers have to do something with their portfolios, right? Well, yeah, and, and, and also there's, there's a shortage of safe assets, you know, mm. particularly Eurozone bonds would have been regarded as interchangeable with Treasuries 15, 20 years ago, post their sovereign debt crisis. Whatever the rating agencies say, you're one degree more nervous about BTPs or French bonds than you are about Treasuries. So they have more scarcity value because there are fewer apparently risk-free assets out there. I guess we'll finish with this one, John Authors. How does policy change affect the inflation picture? So we have the Infrastructure Plan, but also the Inflation Reduction Act now, but yeah. it's been touted as inflationary and anti-inflationary, yeah. depending on where you're standing. I personally doubt in the short term it'll have minimal impact on inflation. In the long term, yeah, if the money's really well invested, then in the very long term it will indeed reduce inflation. And if it's wasted, it will increase it. They're politicians and they call it that. I don't think it's a particularly relevant concern. I think geopolitical issues really matter. So if the Ukraine-Russia war, which has steadily convinced us that we can forget about it in the last month or two, flares up again, that's an issue. And obviously some of the scenarios coming out of the Taiwan Strait would change things profoundly. John Authors and Jonathan Levin. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
Well, the data is in. New York, London, Hong Kong, they may not be the centres of the financial universe anymore. We're joined from Dubai by Anjani Trevetti. Anjani, you looked at the data and found people are actually feeling quite differently these days about the so-called traditional financial hubs. Tell us a little bit about what you found. The traditional financial hubs of New York, London, Hong Kong top the list of financial centres, as they historically have, because they have deep capital markets, regulatory infrastructure, financial plumbing, and they've created an ecosystem of workers around it. Now, an ecosystem of workers that get paid relatively well also means that the cost of living index in these places goes up, real estate prices go up, schooling, everything else around it, generally costs are up. However, when you look at the flip side of that, on the quality of living index, they rank very low. And that's always been the case. And my conclusion from this is really that over the last two, three years, as we've lived through COVID, worked from home, People have realized they don't need to be people who've been commuting to the city or doing various things. They don't necessarily want to do that, and they don't necessarily feel the need to do it. And therefore, we've seen things like mass trends in employment or rather unemployment and the great resignation. And increasingly, people want to be in different places and care about the way they live and want to live better lives. Yeah, and interestingly, we have seen movements of certain firms. You know, there have been moves to Nashville by some firms, even their HQ. And then there have been office openings in places like Miami and West Palm Beach and in Britain, Mm -hmm. outskirts cities like Birmingham. But it's not clear yet whether these cities will be able to handle the influx of these financial workers, right? Or is it? Well, it isn't clear, but I think more broadly what we need to be ready for and what employers and businesses need to be ready for that, you know, we need to have more spread out centers. You can't have a concentration of workers because that's just not going to work. And how you manage that in terms of You know, would you rather have employees leave and then have a cost of rehiring and the cost of looking for talent again? Or do we accommodate workers across different areas? And this doesn't mean that people need to be going and working on a beach. But, you know, they can be in places where there's enough capacity, a center of gravity in those regions. Is it the case that finance brings some of these problems with it? It does, you know. I mean, that is the caveat. There are licensing and registration and all these issues that, you know, are constraints. However, those can also, I mean, depending on the city you choose and the places you choose, those can be worked around. And I think ultimately it really comes down to understanding flexibility in its true sense. It doesn't have to be a black or white issue. It doesn't have to be always work from home or never work from home. But I think our understanding of the workplace has gotten better. And I do think there's advantages of being in the office, that said, which is why I think, you know, if it's more convenient and if people can work in teams and be in offices, there needs to be different types of arrangements. And I think it also depends on the sectors and finance. It can work. Well, interestingly, we saw sort of a mini example of this post-Brexit, right? We were wondering if firms would leave London, if they would need to leave London. And we definitely saw a move towards places like Frankfurt and other places where regulators are based, but London still held on to its status, at least so far, especially in the FX world, for example. You're in a place now which might be a burgeoning financial centre. Tell us a little bit about Dubai. Now, Dubai is one of those places where they've maintained being commercial through the pandemic. They've maintained air travel very well. They've had plenty of housing, plenty of schools. They've kind of developed with the times, if you will. And while it has its own set of shortcomings, I think the more and more I speak to people who've been here for the last 10 years or who were here 20 years ago, 
it's become clear that as places attract talent, those places become central to how we think about them. So, you know, if we have more finance professionals who've been in many other places here, the quality of human capital goes up, if you will. Mm. Will it become the foremost financial center? Unlikely, because we're still competing with the likes of New York and London. And London, you know, affects, as you mentioned, it's the center of the world. It has the deepest capital market, but it still had its issues in that, right? And people have still been able to arbitrage that and get around that. So it's a question of how we think about it. You know, regulatory oversight is a, also a very, very valid and important. So it's a fairly vague Well, you looked at the Mercer Quality of Living Index and found that thanks to sky-high rents and so on, which continue to go up, and it's not just New York, it's all over the United States, New York was 44th on the list, London was 41st on the list, and the cities that topped the list were places like Vienna and Zurich. And they're very developed places, but quality of living is extremely high. So why wouldn't it be an option, I would ask employers and businesses, to have a small hub there? No one's saying have a headquarters there, but, you know, those are things that people need to consider. Regulators need to think about it and to work in tandem with businesses to see what can be set up. So things do need to develop, and of course we need guardrails in place. However, it is the time for us to reassess. If we want to keep people in the workforce, then this is perhaps a time to be thinking about how to make things better and keep the workforce productive. Anjani Trivedi. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. By the way, do get in touch. Comments and opinions always welcome at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Now to Jonathan Bernstein and the week in politics. So, Jonathan, we're definitely going to talk about the primaries, but with all of the theatre this week, it would be remiss not to begin with Mar-a-Lago and also the pleading of the fifth by the former president. Just theatre or may this have some kind of an impact on voting, on people's preferences? You know, my tendency is to guess that things like this will not wind up having electoral effects. People vote for all sorts of reasons, don't vote for all sorts of reasons, and it's, it seems unlikely to me that something that happened to Trump, the former president, in early August is going to have a major effect on whether people choose to vote or not. I, I would guess that things like gasoline prices and the pandemic and inflation and jobs more generally and highly uh, salient issues like abortion this year are going to have more effect on voting than this kind of thing. It's very important. There's all kinds of important things about what's happening with Trump and the law, but I'm not sure that it's going to have effects on 2022 elections or, for that matter, perhaps 2024 elections. Right, and we are seeing abortion rights becoming more of an issue at the polls, but just to sort of tie a, a knot in other aspect of things, is the picture getting any less muddy about whether the former president might actually see charges, whether Mary Garland will actually prosecute? I try to not speculate too much. I would say it does appear that Justice Department is taking the entire range of things that Trump has been doing pretty seriously. He also has the issue down in the Georgia judicial system where he's under assault. And of course, the thing in New York State, which is now a civil procedure, not a criminal one, 
there's a lot of trouble that he's in. And could it end in indictments? Absolutely. Well, and at the very least, yeah. it has to be taking a lot of his time, right? I mean, there's a lot of chatter about whether he will announce, should be announcing, is about to announce, will not announce. But he's spending a lot of his time in meetings with lawyers. That's true. You know, the truth is, Donald Trump's been running for president every day since he announced in 2015. He never stopped running in between when he was president. He, in fact, you know, formally announced right when he became president. But formal decisions about that kind of thing are not that important. What matters is what is the candidate actually doing? And Donald Trump has been doing all the things that presidential candidates do. The political scientist Josh Putnam calls it, he's running for 2024. We don't know yet whether he'll be running in 2024. Yes, nice way of putting it. That said, we got another round of primaries, and it does seem like the picture is getting muddier in the sense that it's not going to be a slam dunk now for Republicans like we might have thought in the House. Yeah, the Republicans are almost certainly going to wind up with a House majority, even now. When there's a Democratic president, Republicans do well in midterms and vice versa. It's very rare to get otherwise. And if you add to that a president who is not popular, and Biden's right around 40% approval rating, which is very low, but even if he got up to 50 55%, the incumbent party usually loses seats at the midterms. There's some reasons to think that this might not be a particularly good year for Republicans. They were hoping that it would be. It still may very well be. But there's some indications the other way. So the generic ballot, people ask, do you intend to vote for a Democrat or Republican for the House? Or sometimes they ask, would you rather have the Democrats or Republicans have the House majority? That question is basically tied right now. Republicans had opened up a small lead, then that's dissipated perhaps because of the abortion decision. It certainly coincides in time with the abortion decision. So that's an indication that Democrats may not be doing that badly. We look at the last couple of special elections for House vacancies, Mm. one in Minnesota and Nebraska a couple weeks ago, and the Democratic candidate beat the partisanship of the district probably by four, five, six points in both of them. It's hard to be certain. We don't have absolute numbers of how partisan a district is. It depends on which elections you count and over how many years. So it's, it's not always easy to assess. You know, we know that in the Minnesota district, the Republican won by four percentage points. We know, you know how Trump did in the last election there. We know how the last House race went. But how do I add it all up to a real partisan balance is more art than science in some ways. How big should the Republican lead have been? Maybe around 10 points, but perhaps less. Yes, very hard to know. And also, we're still very early days, and we can't forget that. Yeah. The more extreme Republicans that are winning their primaries, is it possible to come to a conclusion on whether this is a good thing for Democrats or a terrible thing for Democrats? Oh, I think that there's no question that Republicans are nominating a bunch of very risky candidates, mostly in statewide races. And in fact... It looks like the Republicans could very well be giving away a Senate majority because they've nominated a series of Trumpist and extreme candidates. Mm. And in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, and a few others, they've just done a terrible job in either who the voters chose out of the choices available or, more to the point, who ran in the first place with a lot of mainstream candidates who most experts thought would have been strong candidates decided not to run at all.
Yeah, it's difficult to know what the GOP is doing right now, actually, what the plan is. Is this planned? Well, I think, you know, you take Trump, who has strong beliefs about maintaining his influence in the party, and that translates for him these days into running on the idea that the 2020 election was rigged, which is not true, and which most voters don't care. You know, voters care about price of gas. They care about whether they have jobs or not. They really don't care about, you know, these crazy stories of how fraud supposedly happened in 2020, even if it really had happened. Unfortunately for Democrats, most voters don't care about the opposite things. They don't care that Trump tried to overturn the election. Yes. Even if they were to believe Trump's lies about it, that's not what's on the top of their mind. So that hurts Republicans. And then more generally, you know, if you think about the reasons that people run for office and want to be politicians, the Republican Party doesn't respond to most of those things. What the Republican Party right now is, is a whole bunch of people who want to go on Fox News and, you know, become famous in that sort of media world, and people who are willing to do what Donald Trump tells them to do. And, you know, there's not that many people who want to be politicians who want those things, and a lot of them aren't particularly good politicians to begin with. So if you think of, like, motivations, why did somebody get involved in politics? Well, there's something they see in the world that they care about changing. Typically for Republicans, it's something like, yes, Tom DeLay's origin story, that he was an exterminator, and he was really upset about government regulations that made his business hard to do, in his view. And that got him you know, involved in politics in order to lessen government regulations. Yeah, change that, policy. That's yeah. a reason people get involved, you know, because they want to change policy. But the Republican Party isn't really about policy. It's about crazy stories about voter fraud that didn't even happen. Another reason people get involved in politics, it's actually a good reason, is because they want power. They want to be in charge of things. And the problem is, in the Republican Party now, in order to get anywhere, you have to first go down to wherever Trump is and get on your knees and then and, and beg him. And most people who want power don't really enjoy doing that sort of thing. No. That said, you know, you just mentioned policy. We have had a huge amount of policy actually enacted in recent weeks. Obviously, there was the infrastructure bill, but also now we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which came a little bit out of the blue given that we thought it was all dead. And it's, it's essentially Joe Manchin's bill. I mean, he sort of chose what got put in there, and Kristen Sinema had a bit to do with it at the end as well. I mean, a positive thing for American democracy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, it's not my job to say whether it's a good bill or not, mm-hmm. whether it's good public policy. But the fact that the Democratic Party, in this case it was just Democrats, are negotiating, are cutting deals, are responding to points of view, even if the points of view are, are not popular ones, and coming together to address important problems in the world. That's good that the system actually can work that way. And we saw that not only in the, I can't take the name seriously, it's the climate and health bill, (laughs) but also Joe Biden signed into law uh, this week the burn pit bill for veterans benefits and the chips and science bill, which you know supports the semiconductor industry and funds basic science. And both of those got some Republican support in the Senate. They weren't sort of true bipartisan bills because they didn't have a majority of both parties, but the 10 Republicans who were necessary to support it in order to defeat the Republican filibuster did so. And we also had a real bipartisan bill, NATO expansion. Mm. 
the Senate had two Republicans didn't vote yes on that one. So there's been quite a bit of legislating going on. It's it's a do-something Congress. It's actually one of the most productive Congresses in the last 50 years. Maybe not the most, but it's among those that you yeah yeah there's a lot of fights about well what counts as a big accomplishment you know it's interesting though Jonathan we don't even ask anymore what will bump President Biden's rating yeah you know there has not been a real correlation over time between whether voters approve of the president and how much legislation gets done or how much policy gets done generally people care about if the price of gas is high they care about that if jobs aren't plentiful they care about that they don't really pay a whole lot of attention to things that pass in Washington, even if it winds up affecting their lives. You know, a lot of people are going to get health care subsidies within the marketplace plans. They were established earlier in the Biden presidency, and now they're going to be extended by this last bill. People just move past that. and That's mm-hmm. not what people base their votes on. Jonathan Bernstein there. We are now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. As always, we love to hear from you at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or send your thoughts to vquinn at bloomberg.net. And don't forget, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer to get your podcasts on. We're produced, as always, by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.